Hey you, listening to this podcast right now. Do you ever think, man, there are so many kick-ass market research podcasts. I wish there was some sort of an award for them so I could go and vote for my favorite. Well, you're in luck. The Market Research Podcast Award is back. Vote for your favorite podcast in the insights industry and bestow upon them the title of MR Podcast of the Year. Nominations are now closed and voting is open. Vote for your absolute favorite market research podcast at littlebirdmarketing.com slash MR hyphen podcast hyphen award. Voting closes August 31st, 2021, and the winner will be announced in October at Greenbook's IIEX North America. Welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. I have a female powerhouse today that you are going to so enjoy. And um, I am so fortunate to bump into amazing people in LinkedIn and then basically rope them in into my life. So welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, Zoe. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's going to be really fun. Zoe Glass is a UX researcher over at Lyft. And I know as soon as I say that, you have a million questions. So I promise I will do my best to actually ask her all of the things about her day and also how awesome it is to see more women coming into UX research. You know, the interesting thing is, is that we have been talking so much within women in research and at different conferences about how we need to get more people to a table, more voices. And this is going to be a wonderful conversation along those lines. So Zoe, tell us a little bit about your day-to-day at Lyft and what's on your mind. And then we're going to just dig deep with what's really going on with you as a UX researcher. Yeah, totally. So I actually am the lead researcher on our rentals team, which little shameless plug is one of our newest products. We actually rent cars to consumers. So just normal people. It's not for drivers. It's not peer-to-peer. It's not anything else that you assumed it was when it popped into your head. But we're like an enterprise competitor, so I'd like to say much better. <laughs> Within that day-to-day, it's, I think, yes, a lot of research, but I'd say generally largely strategy, making sure people listen to the research, pushing for that impact across teams, and really making sure everything comes to fruition. I think that might be, spoiler alert, the most disappointing thing for junior UXRs coming into the field. Um, we definitely get to do research, I promise, but a lot more of it is more shepherding that research to fruition than, say, actually being in the field all the time. So a lot of my day-to-day is meetings, but with amazing people, I have a spectacular team around me. Oh, that, that see, that that's what's so interesting. I do think what this show is about is pulling the curtain back a little bit and seeing really what is going on as a UX researcher or whatever it is people are doing. And I think that kind of exposure helps people understand the whole ecosystem, you know, that we're living in. And I want to come back a little bit to the issue you talked about, your little spoiler alert. <laughs> Sometimes people do amazing research and then it doesn't get used. So talk about, you know, now where you're at, the level of expertise you have, how you actually go about pushing for business impact. How do you feel like you advocate for the research? Totally. I actually absolutely love this question. And for so many reasons. I mean, one, resumes need to be impact focused. Portfolios need to be impact focused. Everything we do is about business impact. This can feel totally unsexy at first because we want to say, like, no, we know what the user wants. We, We know everything that could be so great. And then our stakeholders don't adopt it. And we sit there kind of sad, right? Like, hey, I found this amazing thing. I found this powerful insight. Why aren't you using it? And we don't realize, especially at the beginnings of our careers, that so much of it is just pushing it across the line. 
Now, I will say I'm actually really lucky. I've had kind of a weird career path that involves some marketing um, and some PR. Now, by no means was I at your level, but a lot of it was just how do you tell a story and sell that story to a client and sell that story to a public? Researchers, we, I think, often get into the field because we prefer books, we prefer these small group interactions, not necessarily pushing for these things, but really to see your research have impact, you have to be that advocate for it. So I have a number of different ways. Some are very formulaic. Um, Involve everybody in your research, number one. And I mean everybody. Some of my best advocates are my engineers. And so often I hear people go, oh, the engineers just are there to make sure they actually code it, they take it to the finish line. But no, they can be actually really powerful, one, at advocating for it. Two, their time is the most expensive in your company. So if you can help them justify that work, they're going to be more supportive. And three, they're going to find solutions that you didn't think of because they simply have a different mindset. So please go after your engineers. Um, I just have an amazing one named Keith who... I, I wouldn't be where I am today without him. So please find an engineer. Um, but involve everybody, like, please send out that script, send out that study plan, send out any edits you make, send out summaries of the sessions, be the obnoxious over-communicator and saying like, here's what's happening, here's what's interesting, especially if they might not wanna hear it, it wasn't what they expected, it goes against the plan you already made, things of that nature. Then, you know, I'm a little bit type A. Um, anybody who knows me listening to this is going, haha, a little bit, but okay, I'm, I'm quite type A. But I create a spreadsheet and that spreadsheet says in this study, here's the five things I found. Here's why they matter. Here's the co-owner, right? My designer is the co-owner. My risk manager is the co-owner. My marketer is the co-owner. Here's the solution I think needs to happen. And I've discussed it with them. Together, we assign it a priority based on the same system everybody uses, P0 through P4, and what we're going to do about it. And we commit together, here's what we're going to do. Now, commitments are only as strong as you enforce them. So two weeks later, here I am with my awesome little spreadsheet saying, hey, risk manager, hey, marketer, hey, whoever else, what's going on with this? What's our plan? Uh, Can you give me any metrics on how this was successful? This does a couple of things. One, obviously, it makes sure it happens. Or if it doesn't happen that you know, and you know why, so you're not beating your head against a wall going, why isn't anybody listening to me? And two, it makes it really easy when perk and performance comes around to be able to say, here's all the amazing things I did, right? Here's all the changes I made. More people are using the product. People are happier. Whatever other metrics are relevant to your OKRs or organizational key results. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay. Those are some juicy bits. So I'm going to put those in the show notes, but you also talked about, you know, you, you, so this is about business impact, right? Yep. And um, I, I see that really couched interestingly connected with getting everybody involved and to your end, getting more voices there is really something that resonates with you. So tell me about um, your experience then as one of very few women in UX research right now. So give me a little bit of your perspective on that and also the very, very awesome things that you've been doing to advance, you know, other females in this field. Yeah, I mean, so I've got to be honest, I've worked at two places as a UX researcher, YouTube and Lyft. Both are actually female dominant in UX research. I don't know why, I don't know why that's different. Um, But especially at Lyft, we're actually more than 50% female in research, which is, I mean, maybe it's more than 60%, 70%. We have a lot of female researchers. It's amazing. You get to lean into that empathy and you really get to lean into those skills that I think we all have fear, like to, to cite Brene Brown's work, like um, <laughs> as a female researcher, you really have a lot 
that you might be playing with societal expectations of what a researcher should be, right? Emotionally controlled, um, very clear, succinct findings, maybe emphasis on quantitative findings, things that more align with traditional or male-dominated workplaces. Especially research though, and qualitative research, I happen to be a mixed methods researcher, but I love qual, is empathy-based, right? It's caring, it's listening, it's loving, um, and certainly the more women you have around you supporting that, the easier it gets. Uh, our head of research, though, is, is a man. His name's Paul, and he's one of the most empathetic researchers I've ever worked with. I learned from him in every meeting I have. So, yeah, bring your whole self to work, I guess, is the TLDR there. Well, I, I for one, on this on this podcast, will never not let you uh, quote Brene Brown. You <laughs> Please have at it. <laughs> he's amazing. <laughs> well, I think to your, to your point, you know, this empathy and, and also, you know, bringing your whole self, which is very hard to do, especially in my environment, you know, where we're creative, it's very subjective. You know, you're at least dealing with data, but when we come at it and we're, if we um, accidentally put our worth on the line about the work that we're doing, we're in trouble because, you know, what people think about our, our creative is so crazy subjective. So we always have a saying here at Little Bird Marketing, work your work job, not your worth job. So I can see how that could really apply over in, in, in uh, UX. But I interrupted you about the mentorship and like where you're going with other women in the field. Yeah, though actually I do want to add on to that. It's so funny because like qual and quant, we're always in this battle with UX research. And generally my rule of thumb is like qual is why you do it. Qual is what, you know, it's, it's getting a sense of scale of that problem. Um, but certainly you're gonna have teams that are like, I don't really like qualitative research, I don't trust it. And you have to be more of an advocate, you have to push for it more. But also tech moves really fast. Um, for anybody transitioning from academia, like put on your Sonic the Hedgehog boots, right? We're not trying to do anything perfectly. I think this kind of applies to marketing too, right? We want to put something that we know is good enough and see what happens. And then we'll edit it and we'll make it better and we'll change it. Like I guarantee you, nobody has ever launched a feature and not made it better after that, even if it was a spectacular successful feature out the gate. So it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. <laughs> try it, try qual, try empathy and push on. But I love that. I love it. And I'm sure with engineers, like you said, you know, bringing them into the mix, they are used to iterative approaches to what they're doing. Yeah. So this isn't anything new for them, but it's really taking that learning from what they do and how they're continually improving and applying it to research. Totally, 100%. I love that. I love that. So tell me a little bit about this really, you know, like what is it in your mind, this UX research mentor? How does that work? Yeah. So I work with a couple of different programs, um, UX Coffee Hours, which is amazing. They have researchers, designers, writers, PMs on there, whatever you're looking to get into, there's someone that you can connect with totally for free. Great program that was started by a Googler. Um, but I also work with something called WorkDoc, which is specifically for women. And I started my own program earlier this year that really is focusing on the end-to-end -end research process. So one of the things I end up hearing a lot as I mentor is this idea of basically, I don't have enough experience, but I can't get a job because I don't have enough experience, which is the classic catch-22. Now, let's be real. You can get a job without experience. It's more of a matter of framing your, the work that you have done and getting in the door, right? I was at YouTube. I used to be a wildlife biologist. I made that transition somehow. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, 
ask me about skunks too, happy to talk. <laughs> uh, but the goal of this project really, I work with a program called Running Start. It encourages women to train and run from office in high school and college. And they do amazing work. Um, I'm very biased, but I'm obsessed with them. And what I wanted to do was really see if I could take a group from talking to a client about an issue that they have to actually delivering those results. That includes developing a script, developing a study plan, um, keeping the client informed and making sure that it meets their needs, putting together a deliverable, which in this case is a deck because we mainly do decks. Sorry if you hate decks, <laughs> 90% of what we do in terms of delivering research anymore. And then actually following through and saying, hey, how are you going to use this? What are you going to do? What impact can this have? So that's been great. And to be honest, I had way more interest than I ever expected. Uh, I think in my mind, I was like, I'm going to put this up on LinkedIn and I'm going to get like five women that are interested and it's going to be great. Um, I ended up with over 400 applicants in a week um, for a program that, to be honest, like I didn't have clear guidelines of like who I was looking to be in the program because I didn't think it was going to be that popular. So it was kind of a fun challenge for myself to figure out who should even be there. That probably doesn't need to be in, but uh, well, it, this is interesting because this is actually how we met because I yeah. really, you know, uh, somebody spotted it and said, oh my gosh, Priscilla, this is so like something you would do. And they were like, you got to meet this gal. And it, to me, that's that always be helping mentality that we talk about at Little Bird Marketing all the time, because we have to be out there really uh, shaping our own industry. And this is one of those things to me, that's an industry shaper. Yeah, totally. And to be honest, it's really what it became for me. Like, I specifically ended up focusing on women UX stars for this. It's my volunteer time. I figure I can use it however I see fit. Um, and it's for a women's program, right? It's for Running Start, which trains uh, with people who identify as women to run for office. So it felt very holistic in that sense. Um, but it's been really great to kind of show people the way of UX research, which is so different than often what we see in schools and boot camps, which is like, here's the method, right? Boot camps are very much, here's how to do a wireframe. Here's how to develop a script. Here's how to do these things, but not necessarily how to take the concern of your stakeholder and turn that into something actionable. So that's really what I wanted to focus on with this is to give people this opportunity to follow it all the way through. Um, by kind of luck, by, by default, whatever else, I ended up focusing on exclusively women for this cohort from minority backgrounds, which is really, in my mind, one of the most powerful things that we can do for UX research, right? Our job as researchers is to be empathetic, to understand our users, to meet them where they are. And if we are a large group of white men or white women, we don't have the opportunity to actually understand where our users are coming from or how to take them into account when it comes to the product. Oh, I so love that. I the love more we that. can train diversity in the field, the better. Right. And so it kind of comes back to your to your original point, which is involve everyone. Involve <laughs> everyone. Everyone and everything. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone's going to have a different opinion. Like yeah. if your other people on your team have different goals, different motivations, different needs, if you can understand those and still deliver research for them that they find helpful, that they find understandable, you've succeeded. You've done an amazing job. I love it. This is like my good friend, Bianca Pryor over at BET. Um, she's talks about, you know, researchers getting to the table and she's like, let's just build a bigger table. 
Exactly. <laughs> I'm all, yes, yeah. let, let's do it. So, well, let me come back to one of the things you talked about at the very beginning, this idea of how much you really feel that your role is not just doing the job, but it is about pushing for impact. And you mentioned just in that last thing that you said that you have a concern for your stakeholders. And you've also mentioned the empathy for the user. I think that's such an interesting balance there. But let's end on this talking about as you're pushing for impact, as you're trying to incorporate more people, as you're, you know, uh, listening to the user and uh, trying to deal with the true problem. What is the real major complaint here? What is the chief complaint that we have to deal with um, at the company? As you're trying to bring that all together, what happened at Lyft during COVID? What, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening is really interested to know what was the pivot? Was there a pivot? Was there a complete change of the research, you know, landscape for you and the plan that you had going forward? So I actually switched to Lyft right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I was made an offer. I was supposed to go in for lunch. And then they were like, oh, we're going into this little two-week lockdown with everybody else. And, and we'll be back. So I actually have not been to the office yet. Um, but I can I did not have a very long transition period between YouTube and Lyft because silly me thought I was going to get to go on vacation in three weeks. So I just transitioned jobs. Uh, that didn't work out. But one of the big shifts we obviously saw was switching to remote research, which don't get me wrong, it has negatives. It's more difficult to kind of like maintain eye contact and take notes. Uh, mocks are all digital and almost everything I do is mobile. So you're displaying a mobile mock on a desktop, which adds bias, adds confusion for sure. But to be very honest, I actually think this has been a spectacular asset for research. And why do I say that? If you look around the country, the vast majority of tech companies are in four places, right? Seattle, predominantly white. San Francisco, predominantly white. Austin, predominantly white. New York, predominantly white. And more wealthy than the rest of the country. So what does that do? It means that the people that we're bringing into our offices to test our product are biased by generally higher incomes, more education, more exposure to technology because these are tech-centric hubs where technology is very valued in our schools. All of these great things that come with our tax revenues and so forth. And like, come on, I'm not criticizing. Um, I live here and I continue to choose to live here. So, but when we switched to the pandemic and said, hey, everything has to be remote, all of a sudden we could study anyone in the country. I could very explicitly say for a study, I don't want anyone who lives in these four cities. I don't want anybody who lives in a major metropolitan area. I want people specifically with less education, with less familiarity with technology, who are older than the age of 65. Most of our research is also biased towards people that are like 20 to 35, because those are the people most interested in technology and most willing to show up. Now that we're able to leverage resources more like userinterviews.com and usertesting.com that have broader databases, and we're not limited by them needing to come into our office, our research gets to become more representative. And I think that is spectacularly powerful. And to be honest, as we go back to the office, as much as I possibly can, I will still be pushing for remote research or traveling to do research in less expected places. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I, I, one of the first things I heard you say there is just like that real value of in-person research, um, you know, just really acknowledging it, but we, we had to do what we had to do. And so exactly. making that very, that very best use of it. But I know that UX researchers were struggling during the pandemic because they are in need of people really having that live reaction, that, that body language. And I love what you said, like the, the, you know, the, um, you know, being able to really see 
see, you know, a person's reaction and have that eye contact is super meaningful. But yeah. you know, the slumped shoulders or the oh, moving yeah. chair uh-huh. away from the desk just a little bit, you're like, you're pushing yourself back from my product. Why? <laughs> but yes, we've lost that. And I don't want to by any means understate that we've lost mm-hmm. that. But I think this has also been a wake-up call about inclusion and research and making sure that it's not just token, right? It's not simply saying, oh, I had one AAPI person in my study, therefore it works for all AAPI people. I had one black person in my study, therefore it works for all black people, I checked the box. We've really forced ourselves to get out of that, or at least we have here at Lyft, and say, no, what is what does honest inclusion mean? What does it actually mean to make sure our products mm-hmm. are equitable? Right. Um, and certainly that requires more of researchers and more time and more budget, but I think all of those things are spectacularly worth it so at the end of the day, I'm grateful for it. I am eager to go back in person, but I think you'll see me a lot more often like hopping on flights to, to places that you might not expect, right? Throw a dart at the map and go wherever it lands and actually get people on the street, get a better sense of what's going on. Oh, I love that. I love that. This I'm still hopeful that as a white Hispanic, people will stop telling me how they think it is I vote. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. But no, that's not right. <laughs> I love that. And, and and I really want to just reiterate that quote you said, which was that you really felt that this has been a wake up call for inclusion and in research. And I'm, oh my gosh, my heart's with you in that. I really hope that we have turned a corner on this and that you're right. It isn't a token, um, a person, and it's not a token issue that this is something that we are going to be able to integrate now into what is absolutely research standards. Totally. Fingers crossed. Lyft has been doing some amazing things on this front. There's a working group headed by a woman named Sally Darby, and it's very much pushing for this. Like, what does it actually mean to have representative and equitable research, and and how do you push for it within your team? So, yeah, I'm very optimistic. Um, perhaps <laughs> naively, I'm young. I'm well, unsurprisingly, quite liberal. Um, but you know what? As long as I get to keep fighting this battle, I will keep fighting it eagerly, and it's an honor to be able to do so. I love it. Well, let's end with this because you are um, heading up now this for for better or for worse, even though you felt maybe a little unprepared, this UX research mentor um, program. So if someone wants to ask you some questions about this, is LinkedIn really the best place to find you and, and, and connect about the mentorship? Yeah, LinkedIn definitely is. We're still in the midst of our first cohort and we're kind of exploring what that second cohort would look like. And we had so much interest that I wasn't expecting. So um, thinking about ways to scale this up, bring in other researchers in the fold, and other nonprofit organizations. Um, almost everything I've done in the last year is with Running Start, who, again, I think is just amazing. But if there are other nonprofits out there interested, please reach out as well. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn's great. Um, Zoe Glass, 1S, nice and complete. <laughs> Thank you, parents. Awesome. Um, any other form, I'll be honest, I, I tend to miss. Though I will say, if I don't respond to you within a few days, LinkedIn desperately needs a marked as unread function, which is how I actually manage my email inbox. So please just send another note and say, hey, I think you might've missed this because I guarantee I did. And it is not personal. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know what? They do have that function. There's the little three dots and this is bad UX because it took me a long time to find it, but you can fix that on LinkedIn. I teach LinkedIn all the time. See, see, coming on this podcast was actually good for you, Zoe. (laughs) I totally agree. I'm going to use that three dot all the time. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Zoe Glass, thank you so much. And just your experience at Lyft, maybe it's a a good use of the word, but it's also what I see you doing is lifting other women and other voices in UX research 
church. And that's super, super positive. And I wish you all the best in continuing with mentorship of so many other people who are going to move this industry forward. Yeah, it's an honor and a privilege. And again, thank you so much for having me. From all the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, thanks for listening. Have a great day and happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.